Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people who've decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding over the world around you and hopefully not challenge your attention span. It's a gorgeous British summer day. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, and the world is at peace on a seemingly carefree Sunday afternoon. In the back garden, the children run fast and free, ready to play. The rare opportunity to crack out the barbecue has presented itself finally, and the family gather around to share food, stories, and laughter. In true British fashion, such an occasion is not complete without the comment, ugh, it's so much hotter this summer than the last, which is usually followed by it's the hottest day on record. We all know those conversations. This is typically a conversation that is dismissed. But as we turn our thoughts towards climate change and the climate crisis, comments like these couldn't be more revealing. Average global temperatures have increased by 2.2 degrees Celsius. That's 35.96 degrees Fahrenheit for our transatlantic cousins. Since 1880, with the greatest changes happening in the late 20th century. The Arctic has warmed the most, by more than 2 degrees Celsius since the 1900s, and twice as fast as the rest of the world in that time period. Temperature extremes have also shifted. According to the Met Office, the UK has been on average 6% wetter over the last 30 years, compared to the previous 30 years. We also know that climate change is happening because we see the effects everywhere and at an increasing rate. According to the National Geographic, average sea levels have risen over 8 inches since 1880 and about 3 of those inches were gained in the last 25 years. And one only needs to look at the devastating wildfires across Europe and America in the past few years to recognise the effects that human-caused global warming has had on biodiversity and air quality. Never before in human history have we been richer, more technologically advanced and more powerful. But despite these advances, we as a global community seem frankly too lazy to deal with the climate crisis. Worse yet, we question whether there is a crisis to be concerned with at all. According to a YouGov poll conducted in late 2021, 13% of those surveyed in Britain believe that the world's climate is changing, but not because of human activity. We've all heard the debate, and I use that word loosely, statements like, 
global temperatures have been high in the past. This is nothing new or unique. Or I've heard about climate gate scandal. You know, aren't scientists manipulating data to invent the climate problem? In the digital age, we are increasingly unable to distinguish fact from fiction. Objective from biased. And how could we be expected to? when information and misinformation sit side by side in search engine results. This episode of Media Minded looks at the climate crisis over the past 50 years. First, we will throw it back to where it all began, walking through the gold-encrusted halls of the oil tycoons as we discuss the origins of climate change denial and then delay. Next, we'll explore the current state of the crisis, utilizing the incredible opportunity of sitting down with an actual climate scientist by giving her some movie trivia. And to top it all off, we'll be teaching you how to win the Twitter comment war against those dastardly denial-bent desperados. Wow, our writers really had their coffee this morning. Joining us in our crusade are Matt larsen Dorr, Head of Education at the WWF, and a climate change misinformation expert, and Sammy Buzzard, a climate scientist with her ears to the very icy floor in terms of the direction the climate is currently taking. We're joined by Dr. Sammy Buzzard, climate scientist. So um, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I am, as you said, a climate scientist, but specifically within that, I'd call myself more a glaciologist, which means that my research focuses on the polar regions. So at the moment, I'm researching how Antarctica's ice is melting and essentially what that means for the future of our planet, what's going to happen to Antarctica, how much of that ice will get into the ocean and cause global sea level rise. And um, as well as that, I'm a lecturer at Cardiff University. So I just finished up a class teaching students about global climate change. We had some really great discussions about the things that they think we should be most worried about in terms of climate and the things that we have to accept and adapt to and the things that we might be able to improve for the future. Amazing. So what exactly does a glaciologist like yourself do on a daily basis? Well, it actually involves a surprising amount of sitting at my computer and um, coding up maths, essentially, because that's my background. Um, I did a maths degree. Um, and yeah, so running computer simulations of that water on top of the ice in Antarctica, working out where that water is going and how that might impact Antarctica's ice shelves, which are the floating parts of Antarctica. So Antarctica is mostly ice on top of land, but around the edges of the continent, the ice has flowed off of that land and is floating on the ocean. And that's what we call ice shelves. And they're huge. Some of them are like the size of France. So really big features and, and ones that we really need to understand. So that's kind of the bulk of my job. But as I said, also I'm a lecturer, so half of my time I'm also kind of planning lectures and teaching students and helping them with their research and so on. Amazing, amazing. And um, obviously I'm going to, you, you know, I'm going to be asking about this topic, but we've got this uh, slightly, slightly small crisis that um, we're currently all living through, uh, climate change. 
Um, nothing major, just uh, the potential survival of our of our home. Um, so, what is climate change? Yeah, just a casual little problem we have. Just to a little one, just a little one. Nothing, uh, nothing to worry about too much. Just, just our house burning and all the rest of it. Yeah, well, I think to explain what climate change is, the important thing is to think about what is our climate and mm-hmm. um, what is the difference between that and weather, because that's the thing that people often get confused. And an analogy I've heard quite a lot that I like to use is thinking about climate change and weather in terms of your wardrobe. So right. the weather we get each day is the clothes that you put on each day. So it's hot, you're going to wear a T-shirt, it's really cold, you're going to put on all your layers. Um, but climate is more like what's in your wardrobe. So it's a combination of all the clothes you have. So what you kind of expect to happen. So you maybe aren't sure day to day what you're going to get, but what you expect is if you live somewhere in a really cold climate, you'll have lots of coats. Or if you're living somewhere that's getting warmer, then your wardrobe will look slightly different. So climate is what we expect, weather is actually what we get. And of course, climate change is if that climate changes from being expecting one type of thing to another. On the surface, the climate question seems simple. Greenhouse gases trap energy from the sun and transfer it to our atmosphere. This leads to warmer winters and harsher summers. Dry places become drier and wet places wetter. Countless ecosystems will of course die, while the rising oceans swallow coasts and the cities we build on them. In the words of Gen Z, so why don't we just like fix it all, right? Well, it's complicated, which is why I've recruited some help. So we're joined by Matt larson Dor, Head of Education at the WWF. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. So as you say, I'm Head of Education at WWF UK. Um, that's the UK branch of the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which is a global um, network of organizations uh, focused on wildlife conservation um, and protection of uh, wild habitats. Um, and uh, my role here at WWF UK is to lead uh, our engagement of schools and also our education policy work um, for the UK. Um, but in previous roles at WWF, I have had uh, a very global remit, um, looking at uh, education as a global issue and working with the, the global network across WWF network offices um, around projects like the Our Planet series um, on Netflix and uh, the David Attenborough film, A Life on Our Planet. Amazing, amazing. Um, so what would you say is your primary goal um, at the WWF and obviously your work primarily in education there? The WWF's vision is for a future where people and nature can thrive together. Um, and so I think we're very well known for our work uh, on protecting wildlife, um, our symbol being the giant panda, which was brought back from the brink of extinction um, through the work of conservation organisations, remembering that the work we do is valuable and it does have an impact. Um, I think people are less uh, familiar uh, with the other side of our work, which is the people side of that vision statement. Um, so a lot of our work is focused on, on people, helping people to understand the value of the natural world, what they can do uh, to lower their own impact, um, negative impact on it, and in fact do something positive um, to conserve uh, nature. Um, and then also uh, just making sure that people understand um, the threats that nature currently faces um, and, and why, that, why that matters to them, why it's relevant to them and what they can do about that. Modern industrial society, as we have constructed it in the past 150 years, is inherently destructive. In 2022, our contribution is perhaps less visible to the civilian eye. You don't see big black smoke clouds 
billowing out of train engines like you would in the 1940s. Yet the Industrial Revolution fundamentally changed how humans interact with the climate. From our cell phones, food, clothes, to the bags that carry our shopping, we're all in some way contributing to climate change. However, the answer is not as simple as throwing away your phone or shopping locally with reusable bags. The barriers to tackling climate change need to be understood on a macro level. With climate denial being kind of the, the fringe issue, as you say, and then it's kind of like not, not the majority of population by any stretch. Um, what would you say are the key barriers to tackling the issue of climate change now? Uh, well, from, from uh, actually tackling the issue of climate change or tackling climate change misinformation or denial. Um, so tackling the, the kind of main barriers to actually dealing with it. So uh, you, you said, for example, it's, it's not so much that people deny that it's a thing. Um, it's often, well, yes, it's happening, but I'm not going to do anything about it because of X reason. Mm. No, well, that's that's a really good point. So, yeah. So what we've seen with, for example, um, the recent uh, UN climate change conference, COP26, um, is that we are now in a position uh, where our leaders um, and, and where all the sort of mainstream voices will stand on a stage and they will say, they will say, first of all, climate change is happening. Then they will also say it's urgent and it's important that we deal with it. So they're saying all of the right things that I think um, the kind of protest movement around climate change has been trying to get them to, to admit mm -hmm. for, you know, for years. Um, and so that's kind of objective uh, achieved. But then is it translating into the actual change that they are saying is needed, that they accept is needed? No, it isn't. So the, the, the new barrier is, is actually trying to, um, yeah, trying to get um, these, these sentiments transformed into action um, and for those actions to be the right ones and the ones that are actually going to make, um, you know, the, the difference that we need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Climate change is a pretty serious situation. It's probably one of the biggest issues in our in, in our generation and, and arguably in our kids generation um like what logic would 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 bring someone to be like eh, it's we, we we can we can kind of chill on this we can keep burning fossil fuels it's fine it's chill yeah well i think um so this is where we're, we're going a little bit into my perspective on this um i what i see happening is is that people are um it, they're very they find it difficult to to get worried about something that they've never seen happen um because it's all very theoretical um mm. and particularly actually uh, and this is you know the sad truth of it is that we've had you know climate change um, and environmental campaigning um obviously for decades mm. um and of course uh, for, for a lot of the people that we need to start taking action or we need to, to care about this more than they do um, they're yet to really see any significant, or, or rather, they're yet to feel any significant impact from climate change. Um, and it always uh, seems like it's being presented as an urgent issue. But urgent for most people is, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow, or, or what do I need to to do to avoid, you know, something that's heading down the road towards me right now. Um, and the idea of changing now and living differently for the next, you know, decade or, or more, um, so that we can avoid something that would happen after that. That's really difficult for people to get their heads around unless they're actually already invested enough to put that thought process in and to put that reflection in. Um, so that's that's where we struggle um, because then you've got people who have a vested interest um, in uh, the delay um, because they're profiting from the situation as it currently is, and they can play on that. They can just you know let people feel that it's okay to pedal slowly um, and and that we'll still get to the same destination in the end. 
and then they can profit hugely from us not um, acting as quickly as we would. And of course, uh, as you said, you know, for us, it seems very urgent. It seems extremely urgent because we're thinking about um, what is happening every day that's making the situation more severe for the future. And we're thinking that's our future. And of course, people who are currently profiting are going to be looking at the other way. It's going to be, well, um, you know, the quicker we change, the more I lose out and the less affluent I am in the future. So it's trying to, um, yeah, it's trying to make sure that we don't get the, the narrative skewed um, by, by people who have a vested interest um, in, in the status quo. To understand what's happening today, we need to go back over 40 years. Back to a company and a man. In 1981, Marty Hoffert stared at his computer screen in shock. He was working in an area of science considered pretty niche at the time, and had just created a model that showed the Earth would be warming very significantly. And the warming would introduce changes to the climate that would be unprecedented in human history. Hoffert was one of the first scientists to create a model which predicted the effects of man-made climate change. And he did it while working, ironically, for Exxon, one of the world's largest oil companies which would later merge with Mobile. When he presented his findings to managers of Exxon, his findings were downplayed, and Exxon's public position was that the evidence was inconclusive. And so completes our story of the origins of the anti-climate change movement. Coming first from the denigrators who denied climate change was ever a thing, and then the manipulators who tried to kick the can down the road, because they couldn't deny its existence anymore. A concoction that, in its entirety, is quite literally toxic. I mean, first of all, just to revisit the, you know, the reason for doing it, mm -hmm. um, uh, which I, I think has, has sort of come out of our discussion so far, but yeah, that this, this huge profit that you can that you can turn from from selling you know oil and, and gas and, and using the infrastructure that's already there from you know decades of, of successful um, business basically um, you know uh, selling the most valuable commodity that the world has had over the industrial revolution mm. um, that's a difficult thing to let go of with wealth comes power so the people who have profited most in the past from this um, are obviously now the ones that hold power. Uh, to determine quite a lot, um, uh, you know, around political activity um, and, of course, um, what those powerful businesses actually put out and, and influence people. Um, and we're not talking just about influence in terms of public communications and campaigns. We're talking about literal influence on on committees and on boards um, because these people are wealthy. And so now that wealth is disconnected from where it came from uh, and they're using the power that comes with that wealth. Um, but, of course, they still have... Um, you know, the, the vested interest uh, has not gone away. Um, and so, you know, you have uh, the, the campaigns and communications of those businesses, you have uh, the influence that they wield in boardrooms, and then you also have um, people who own uh, the media outlets. And of course, the media um, is, is a channel to directly influence what people think. Um, and it's just, it's dangerously easy to muddy the waters um, without even necessarily, uh, you know, lying and, and putting out false information. Um, you can muddy the waters uh, in terms of um, how credible uh, or how definite, um, you know, a, a suggested course of action is. Um, and if that suggested course of action 
um, is backed up by you know 99% of scientists um, and and is and is absolutely you know categorically clear um, in terms of, of what needs to be done and how quickly it needs to be done. But then when it's presented, you 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 use the term you know for example environmental activists claim that's a very very different framing for example than mm-hmm. um, than just presenting it as facts uh, as objective truth. And um, so there's a lot of different sort of insidious ways that that this um, uh, public debate in this sense that it's not a cut and dry issue can be um, can be kept going. Um, and then, of course, there's really practical ways that, um, you know, influential businesses uh, can can cause delay. A, a really good example is, of course, to, um, you know, electric cars. We, we've had um, we've had alternatives um, in you know prototype to petrol driven combustion engine cars um, for, you know, decades and decades. Um, but they they haven't ever been you know uh, prioritised. Um, development uh, has has been stalled. Um, there's um, examples of patents. Um, so you know the rights to, to sell a, a technology or an invention um, that that could revolutionise um, our, our dependence on fossil fuels being bought by the companies that sell fossil fuels just so that they can sit on them and stop them reaching marketplace. And that's that's the kind of uh activity which it's not illegal it should be illegal perhaps but it's not illegal it's just business sense um Mm -hmm. but it's actually uh ultimately um having a a negative effect on on our future prospects so that that's where i think we we need a sort of bit of a moral awakening and actually this is one of the things that we we try and bring um into the conversation with with schools especially in secondary schools Mm. um is this um this idea that's been built up around how the economy and how society uh, should work if it if it's if it's succeeding, um, and and obviously the business world in a capitalist um, uh, society, uh, you know, a lot of it's driven from from business practice, um, and this this idea that um, success means growth is a is a real issue, um, and so this idea that um, you know you need to be delivering but success means immediate growth, right? It's that kind of idea of like well, you well exactly, but it's growth year on year. That's mm. the thing, and, and and growth without an end in sight. You only ever mark success by whether or not you're making more than the year before, mm-hmm. and that's the way that you know profit works, and, and that's how you're considered to be delivering uh, uh, on shareholder expectations. Yeah. So the idea that you would be, um, you know, taking a few years where you're actually going to be making a loss um, because that makes business sense. That it doesn't work at the moment. <laughs> that that's not seen as as being, um, you know, uh, the right way to do business. That would be seen as as failure. Your stock would drop. Uh, you could potentially end up in a position where you're not around to be able to make those changes that you're aiming for. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by the system doesn't support the moral choice at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, if you look at, we've got a, a you know, really fantastic film that was created off the back of the Our Planet series uh, called Our Planet, Our Business, um, which I really recommend. It's 35 minutes, very well spent to watch. Um, but it just kind of outlines um, the difference between that sort of perception of of success Mm-hmm. And and what happens naturally in in the natural world in the living world, um, where you have uh, basically an equilibrium is established, and that's what sustains. That's what you can be sure is going to be still around, and um, you know, in however many years' time, unless there's a sort of external disaster uh, like a huge meteorite. And and it's not just in business. You see this in politics as well, where you know um, you've got. If you you know if you, if you form a government, you manage to get a majority, and you and and, and you're in power. Um, you often see this where 
things like climate change require like you're not going to see um you know the voters not going to necessarily see the benefit by the time the next general election rolls around so there are other things other policies that are a little bit more popular that people will see the benefit for so it you know the, the big issues like climate change can get kicked down the road kicked down the road kicked down the road just because again you need you have that cycle and people rely on uh, will you rely on people seeing those kind of positives within the kind of years that you need before the next general election? And businesses, you know, it's the same thing. The shareholders want to see what you're doing or else you you, you potentially get removed as, as as part of C-suite. And and it's interesting because, you know, again, it's that idea of short-sightedness because, yeah, you may make a loss in for, for two to five years. But if your business can sustain that loss and then suddenly you're making, I don't know, 50x growth after after all that because of your investments like surely that um could still be considered a, a success but going going back to these kind of delay um tactics that are, are currently being employed by by various actors i mean what what kind of impact are they having on the climate change movement and the, the reason why i ask this because you, you mentioned obviously the media and and um social media and the way that perceptions are and i remember when uh exile so extinction rebellion was it was quite a big thing in the news um, quite often, I mean, some articles you'd see, you know, covering what they were actually talking about and others that just focused on them gluing, gluing themselves to trains. And it's, again, that perception of, oh, those pesky activists, you know, they're, they're, they're gluing themselves to trains and eating vegan food in the middle of Parliament Square and blocking traffic. Like, it's interesting how that narrative can quite easily spin out to an inconvenience as opposed to, well, these people are screaming about the fact that we're kind of burning our own home here and we're going to potentially be made homeless. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and, and it's a, a lot of the, the term that, um, you know, Extinction Rebellion often uses when they're, you know, you know they're communicating why they're doing what they're doing is, mm. is that we can't carry on as business as usual. Business as usual is what's breaking the planet. Um, mm. And that's where um, some of the responses to, um, you know, to, to, to such protests um, from the government, from the police, from the media, um, or obviously often owned, um, you know, by private interests. Um, it really focuses on um, we, you know, no matter how good their cause, um, we can't support what they're doing. What they're doing is is bad because it's disrupting business as usual. They might not use those terms, but that's effectively what they're saying. And and even, you know, the police bill that's um, that's hopefully, um, you know, not going to to get through as it was originally proposed. Um, but that has in it um, a, a clause, uh, rather insidious clause, uh, that that is focused on um, a justification for ending a protest or, or for you know arresting people who are protesting if it's you if it's causing disruption to business. Uh, but of course, if what you're protesting against is business and and the fact that no matter how much you know scientific evidence there is out there uh, that it should change, it's not changing. Um, then surely the disruption of business is uh, is is what legal protest should enable you to do. It's not if it doesn't hurt people, if it doesn't um, you know destruct uh, property, um, then you are you're making um, things difficult to get your point across, which is what protest is meant to be. You're getting people's attention by disruption. While the scope of climate change denial may not be as widespread as in the 1980s thanks to the tireless work of climate scientists, activists, and influencers. It's as clear as a cloudless sky that climate denial is still a problem. Whether it is claimed that temperature fluctuations are normal, humans are not the problem, or it's just a special kind of British cynicism about our constantly grey skies, a little global warming never hurt anybody. 
The first words on many climate deniers' tongues in 2022 aren't, it's not my fault, they're not my problem. We appear to be attempting to ignore a problem, staring us right in the face. To put it in terms Netflix viewers everywhere may recognize, we've chosen to not look up. Just in case this comet of a film never reached your radar, what I'm referring to is a film called Don't Look Up, released in mid-December 2021 and straight to Netflix because, well, cinema going wasn't really the in thing at the time. In the film, by the way, spoiler coming, whilst doing a routine check of our solar system, two low-level scientists discover a 100 kilometer wide comet hurtling towards Earth with a 99% chance of destroying human civilization. In their labored efforts to tell the world about it, landing them interviews on national television and even a meeting with a brazen and bizarrely familiar president of the United States, they achieve virtually nothing because nobody seems to care. In fact, many a counter effort is made to discredit their apocalyptic warnings even towards the end of the film, when the comet itself can be seen in the sky. In the end, a population being lulled into online conspiracy theories, attempting to discredit plain as day facts regarding the future of our planet, seemed incredibly, and yet unfortunately familiar. As, as I'm sure you've, you've seen and uh, people raging on, on social media about it. The, uh, uh, I can't help but talk about the film, uh, Don't Look Up, just because of the, uh, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I just thought it was a, it was an incredible um, depiction of um, fact versus, you know, people's opinions, people's interests, um, but also just, just the, the, the competing interests that, that you kind of see in the film and um, the, the levels of how misinformation can really sway people. And I was just wondering, I mean, First of all, um, I hope you've seen it. It's an amazing film. If you have yes. Yeah, I have. <laughs> um, and it, it, what ways do you see the, if you do at all, uh, see the parallels between the kind of two main um, protagonists to the the uh, astronomers um, in in Don't Look Up and the kind of lives that um, that you're kind of experiencing yourself as a as a climate scientist. Yeah, I think that film was very hard to avoid over the Christmas period as a climate scientist because it felt like a lot of prominent climate scientists watched it, they were tweeting about it, more people kind of got on the bandwagon mm. and so yeah it was kind of hard to <laughs> avoid it but when I did get round to seeing it it was yeah more depressing than I thought it was going to be. Um, I kind of knew from people having been tweeting about it and expecting that there would be obvious parallels with climate scientists and how there is a lot of misinformation and people are more worried about certain things than climate change because they think it maybe won't affect them. Mm. Um, but yeah it just especially kind of the first half of the film and talking to the policymakers and the media and um, I spent the last kind of um, from 2019 and 2020, I was working at Georgia Tech in the US. So the way that a lot of people there would react to me talking about climate change and like trying to change the subject to minimize the impact of it. And also seeing how easy misinformation could spread there because I was there during the run up to the 2020 election. 
and during the pandemic. So there was so much misinformation and people's kind of being really like on edge about everything mm. around those things that it just the first half of the film seemed scarily believable to me and that wasn't necessarily the effect that it had on people who weren't climate scientists talking to people who my friends who aren't climate scientists and they were like oh yeah but like the media aren't really that bad are they like they made the film really extreme and I was like yeah it, it felt far too close to home for me and that the kind of reactions they were getting very similar ones that I've experienced. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, did you do you when you say they kind of um, they had similar reactions um, to the kind of ones that you're getting? Do you have any examples of that? Um, I'm trying hard to think of something specific, but I think I guess the way that people will minimise the problem and just say, "Oh, yeah," so. Yeah, maybe like people won't definitely say it's not happening, but they'll then focus on something else and say, oh, yeah, well, climate change, sure, maybe the sea level will go up a bit, but who really cares if things get a bit warmer? And that's definitely something we see a lot in the UK, because actually a lot of the kind of climate impacts we might get drier summers, for example, in Wales. And um, when I say that to people, they're like, well, this is great. Why are we worried? Let's not worry about what's going to happen to people in other countries because we're going to have a lovely time here in like Costa del Cardiff. And um, actually, <laughs> just because we have drier summers, we're also going to expect potentially much heavier rainfall when we do get it, which mm. obviously is a big problem because then that's how you get flash flooding events and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think people like to focus on the bits that they can see as like positive or kind of just think it's not a really serious thing we have to think about mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no definitely I mean it was a um uh, the one I always hear is the 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 argument of a oh the climate's always changed um mm -hmm. or you know well England will have a booming wine industry and it's like that's not quite the point but never mind um and it was yeah it was it was incredibly um for me it was just you know how when you watch a film that's kind of based on based on something true or, or something that's happening in kind of parallel in the real world you often um know that it's dramatized because it's a film it's meant to be entertaining it's meant to be either funny or, or, or reactionary or whatever um and you're right that that film kind of felt like it wasn't that dramatized like you, you watched it and you could you could literally believe that this would happen in real life like it was it's the, the the reactions from the media obviously you know the breakdowns on camera and so forth were a little bit extreme but in general um you know the, the, the trivialization of issues and we see this quite often in media where they where they pit two opinions against each other which quite often sometimes i mean one opinion is based in fact and one opinion is based as, as, as a purely unbased opinion and you, you kind of wonder well the media sometimes has to take responsibility for that um when when you you know when you when you have someone that has authority speaking on an issue um not everything has to be um as they say in the film not everything has to be funny or a joke or a meme or whatever or some things are just facts and they are unfortunately quite serious um and with that i mean why do you think people don't look up or, or didn't look up in the film so to speak or and, and don't want to acknowledge um something as serious as climate change despite the level of evidence that is now mounting towards the fact that we desperately need to deal with this problem i think especially in the last couple of years there are just so many things that people have to be concerned about and 
I can totally understand that someone would not be worried about sea level rise in 20 years time when you know there's a global pandemic happening outside their front door so there's only a limit I think as human beings how much we can actually worry about without going into just complete panic all the time which obviously isn't going to achieve anything and um, I think there is also an aspect of this is someone else's problem so the politicians will deal with it the scientists will find a way to fix this it's not me being my this one individual and recycling and maybe going on one less holiday a year is not going to change anything but of course those things do change everything because there's seven billion people on the planet and if everyone does something differently that's going to make a big change mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and in in the um um in in the film one of the things that i i found really compelling was this was this this um essentially this theme of misinformation that was that was essentially kind of running in parallel with with the kind of uh, the trivialization of the topic people kind of ignoring the science or ignoring the scientists but this kind of theme of um well every opinion is valid and i think it's, it's it's an interesting pillar of our of our democracy where we have a debate on everything you know like everyone has has, has the opportunity to have a debate opportunity to have an opinion but one of the things that was quite interesting in in the film because of how you know you could see if you physically looked up you could see this meteor coming coming towards them eventually um and it, it brought up this really interesting argument for me around well do we have a problem in our society where we validate every single opinion to the point where sometimes it may be it may come across as harsh but sometimes you know there is no debate really you know one opinion is just plain wrong and us validating that opinion is creating a discussion over something that frankly shouldn't be discussed it's like you either accept the science or you're lying to yourself and others um and i'm wondering is there an issue there where will we kind of we we try and validate everyone's opinion even though there are some that are just you know maybe we just got to say it that you're just wrong yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to things that are scientifically proven facts, then, yeah, I mean, temperatures are going up, CO2 levels are going up. We know that CO2 or carbon dioxide levels are going to influence global temperature. I mean, that is basic physics. So for me, there's not a debate to be had there, but there are things that we do need to debate. And um, how we, how should we change these who is responsible for this happening where should the money come from which things do we prioritize adapting to because there are some changes we're already locked into that we can't adapt to everything so which kind of coastal communities do we prioritize protecting them from sea level rise and which ones do we have to say well it's not sustainable for you to live in this place anymore and i think the danger is while we're debating the basic facts which does unfortunately still happen we're not having these important conversations about, okay, right, we know what's going to happen or what's likely to happen. Now, what should we do about it? Because those are things that I think we very much should be debating because the consequences aren't good for everyone. And it's important that people do kind of get involved and think about what we're gonna do in the future rather than stalling and thinking about, is this happening or not? It is happening. We need to decide what to do. And we need to decide it yesterday. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that you know just got dead that conversation this is what it is these are the facts let's 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 have a debate about solving it sure um but there's no point in having this conversation and i think and, and and to be to be fair i think the media have to to a large extent kind of 
uh, kill that debate in the sense that they don't really you don't really see uh, a climate denier or whatever on 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 the radio or on TV that often anymore. Like you don't see those kind of debates happening, which is a, which is a, I think a good thing. Like there's there's certain things that, as you say, you know, it's just fact. Like let's let's move on. It's like debating if gravity is a thing. Like it's it is. Let's move on. Um, if there was a key message from that film that you'd like people to take away what would you say it would be just kind of like one and um, i'd say that it's we can't delay acting on these things because i guess that's where they really went wrong in the film for the part of me for me the part of the film that was kind of really believable was the start and how it was kind of getting the momentum for mm-hmm. people to actually affect things i think the part where you had the kind of Elon Musk sort of character saying, no, turn the rockets round. That's kind of where it went to a bit more fantasy. I'm not sure that that part, that was kind of more dramatization and for the fun of the film. But the part where everyone was saying, is this even happening? What do we need to do? Like that sitting around and thinking about it is, we don't have time to do that. We need to decide now what we're going to do. It's easy to forget that the people working to fix the world's climate for the present and next generation are of course human beings, just like us. And of course just like the people online who do their best to discredit all the hard work that experts do. Climate scientists, like Sammy, don't exist outside of the realm of the living, huddled together in a boarded up, dimly lit silo reading charts isolated from the rest of the world. They're on social media, just like we are, exposed to hate from people online, personally attacking them for speaking the truth about the world we live in and the damage we're doing to it by not caring. They teach students every day about the work they do, despite those students being exposed to this hate as well. It's probably one of the most thankless jobs out there and probably one of the most exhausting, given that these days, after reading a single manipulated and unrepresentative chart, it seems like everyone thinks they're some sort of climate scientist. When the Brexit debate was going on, um, there was a lot of, you know, oh, we're fed up of experts, you know, we we don't want experts anymore. And it's kind of like the, the, this push to... Um, trivialize working years and studying for years on a on a topic and kind of making it seem like you um your 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 expertise is kind of irrelevant do you feel like in in your job has that affected you at all like is it is that kind of like hostility towards towards experts ever ever been a um ever been been an issue for you yeah it's it's definitely very frustrating seeing that happen because I mean, we can definitely, as climate scientists, can sympathise with all the experts in public health and pandemics who gave governments worldwide advice, like the best advice based on their years and years of experience. And in many cases, that was ignored for political reasons or various other reasons. So it's definitely hard from that point of view. But I would say on a day-to-day basis, I don't know we just kind of keep going with what we're doing because we know that it is important we do need that information to be out there for people to make the best decisions and if 
everyone chooses to vote in people who aren't going to make the best decisions, then at least we know we gave them the opportunity. I mean, but do you feel like your voice is um, more or less heard? Like when, when since since the kind of because I don't think anyone can deny that we we live in a pretty toxic time in the sense that you know you've got. Okay, I mean, not that I'm going to consistently refer to the film, but it's just such a good analogy. Like, you've got this kind of two sides that rarely talk to each other. Um, and when they do, it's often yelling and it's 120 characters on Twitter or whatever. Like, that, that's not a conversation. You're just kind of um, just annoying the other side. You're, you're, you're more doing it for your own validation than anything else. And I think that's for a lot of people. Those are the kind of conversations they have online. Um, and it's creating quite a... I would argue quite a toxic environment where it is more based on emotions than it is on facts. Um, and uh, I guess my question is, do, do you, has that environment um, changed how you, how you communicate with people online at all or anything like that? Was it? Yeah, absolutely. I think especially since the pandemic and since the U S election, everyone is so on edge that, kind of for my own sanity mm -hmm. I definitely I, I go on Twitter a lot less these days and I do have friends and colleagues who will engage with a lot of kind of climate denial communities online but god how does that go down I mean it's I get the impression it's kind of like talking to a brick wall I think if you're online to and like your sole purpose of being there is to shout at climate scientists and get your point across then that's not, you're not there for a healthy debate and actually to learn and listen to the other side. Mm -hmm. And so that's personally something I haven't really engaged with very much. I'd much rather go and talk to kind of a class of school children who want to know more about what the planet's going to look like in the future or a community group who want to know how their community is going to change because those are people who maybe don't have all the facts but are absolutely interested in learning about them. And that's probably a much more productive way for me personally to spend my time mm -hmm. no it makes sense i mean yeah but i mean you know the best way to i guess change um society and make it more fact orientated is by um ensuring that young people so the next generation coming up first of all have all the facts and also the critical thinking uh ability and the emotional resilience to make those decisions based on fact rather than emotion and letting themselves be swayed by uh missing disinformation um and it, but it's interesting that some of your colleagues do do decide to um, smack their heads repeatedly against the against the brick wall of ignorance. Um, do you, do any of them break through to some of these people, and and like, or, or have there been some pretty aggressive backlashes to them to them doing this? I, I've not heard of any good success stories of people trying to do this, especially online. Oh, to be honest, <laughs> um, that's positive. I think who managed to talk to people one-on-one mm -hmm. on one and actually have really good conversations about this um I've definitely spoken to people who had just kind of heard generally like through social media some misinformation and mm -hmm. then spoke to them about kind of what I know from being a climate researcher and managed to at least open them up to the idea of looking into this more I think if you have someone who's willing to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation um it's good, but I think that's also become much more difficult in recent years. Um, I have a friend whose husband um, didn't believe that climate change is happening. And she's like, I really want you to talk to him. And one day we were kind of sitting out on her porch and he came home and she was like, hey, this is Sammy, she's the climate scientist. And he was just like, um, and straight away, because it was so close to the US election as well, um, 
since as well as in the US and it was just not even up for talking about this it was just completely like no I don't believe this shut down the conversation walk away mm. um so it, it can be tough but I have had some some success talking to people one-on-one I think oh you have okay more human element yeah if you're not just having your however many characters you get on Twitter these days um if you can actually just have a conversation then yeah understanding why people have come to the conclusions that they, that they have um, and then maybe giving them some more facts mm-hmm. can have some success no amazing i mean can you could you give us an example of one of those success stories um i think the most simple one is i um met someone who said i believe in climate change but i don't believe in global warming um which <laughs> very <laughs> very much confused me okay um, as a statement um but then we kind of went through and I was like okay so which things do you not believe in like um what do you think is changing and then talking about kind of just just the physics behind it and saying look here is the evidence things are definitely warming and there are some people that it's just not something they thought too much about they kind of have like kind of half-formed opinions maybe that you can fill in the gaps and then have some success in that mm-hmm. extent so it's not someone who's like adamantly denying it's happening and just like oh well I've kind of seen it but it doesn't seem that plausible to me and um, yeah. those kind of people you can have a really good discussion with I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no definitely it's interesting um the language that's sometimes used for me like you say that you know th- this person said to you, "Oh, I I believe in in, in climate change, but I don't believe in global warming." And it almost sounds like a religion. It's like, "Oh, I believe yeah. in I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the uh, uh, what's it called, turning water into wine or whatever." But it, it's that kind of idea of that, and you kind of you kind of wonder almost like, are they convinced by you or conv- or understanding that this is actual factual reality? Um, kind of makes you wonder a little bit. Yeah, I think we are moving a lot more into a space where it is that these are facts. It's not something mm-hmm. you believe in, it's something that's happening. But I think the rhetoric over the past kind of couple of decades or so has been like, is this something you believe is happening? Do you believe we have climate change? Do you believe in ghosts? Like, do you um, believe there's an afterlife after this one? Do you know what I mean? Or yeah, <laughs> like it's one of the things, like it's your personal choice to believe in this or not. Right. And it's like, you know, it's, it's happening right right now outside it's mm-hmm. here it's not up to you if you believe in like do you believe in clouds because they're here they're gonna rain on you right um yeah it's like do you believe that that there are squirrels in england so it doesn't yeah. really you either accept that they exist and they're here um or you just don't and you you can lie to yourself or or, or remain ignorant um and 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 i'm kind of curious on the flip side of that i mean has there has there ever been situations where either yourself or your colleagues have felt um, uncomfortable or un- unsafe in, in, w- w- when engaging with, with, with conversations like this, either online or, or offline? Yeah, personally, I feel quite lucky. I've not experienced too much of the unsafe side, mm-hmm. but it has been known for climate scientists to get hate mail and even death threats. So it's... Damn. Yeah, there are definitely cases where like quite upsetting things that have happened to people just because they're telling people what is happening, the facts. It's not 
for not sharing opinions and just for sharing those facts. As Sammy explains, trying to get through to naysayers online when it comes to facts about climate change or the facts of any issue for that matter often feels like trying to punch for a brick wall. If it ever occurs, it's a rare feat. That's why it's crucial to understand their arguments before we challenge them on their beliefs and combat them with what we know or maybe just knowing that it's okay to not know and that reality of not knowing shouldn't be replaced with false information purely for the purposes of filling a void that scientists are still working on. Science improves over time and ultimately we just have to be patient. But in the lightning fast information age, that's no easy task. What are the kind of most ridiculous arguments or misconceptions or conspiracy theories that you've heard around around this topic, if any? Um, oh, there are loads, but I think I presume what's so. the most ridiculous <laughs> one for me personally is the fact that it is all kind of a conspiracy of the scientists. And the reason we're doing this is because if we keep inventing more climate change, we'll keep getting paid more. Um, ah, so you're doing it for monetary gain. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in a lot of cases, like <laughs> I'm not sure quite in the UK, but definitely in the US for a lot of public institutions, you can look up what scientists make and trust me, we're not doing this for the money. Um, a lot of people in the job that I do could quite happily move into industry. So for example, on the meteorology side, moving into like reassurance and looking at extreme weather events and that kind of thing and easily end double, if not triple the salaries that we get for doing academic research. And um, we are definitely not doing this for the money, but even if, if you are absolutely convinced that we are, the idea that, I think there was a paper that came out a few years ago now that said 97% of scientists are in agreement that humans are causing climate change. I've been in a room with 10 scientists, getting them to agree on anything is insane. Getting 97% <laughs> of climate scientists to agree on something. Like, I, I still can't believe that that happened. Like, it's like herding cats in the mm. dark wearing a blindfold. You, these people do not agree. Um, we will get into really heated debates over, like, tiny fractions of a number or, like, small predictions of which year we think something is most likely to occur in the future so the idea that so many people can agree on something is some kind of conspiracy yeah mm -hmm. that's just wild um it's <laughs> it would never happen if it wasn't true no doubt i mean it's it, yeah i mean yeah anyone that's worked with 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 academics in any stretch of the imagination is you get a couple of academics in a room and they will go into insane amount of detail and argue about that detail for potentially hours. Yeah, um, like we can have debates over how many, the word count on our students' dissertation should be, would be like an hours long debate in our teaching meetings. <laughs> that's something that, yeah, like it is going to impact our students to a small extent, but it's not something that's going to change the world. Right. And if we spend like an hour arguing over that and come to no agreement at all, then yeah. <laughs> The idea that people actually agree to climate change is happening, mm. humans have caused it, is, yeah, you can't argue no. with that. No, you can't, um, although people do try. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> one of the things that um, I, I've always found quite interesting is that if you look at the, um, 
the the conspiracy theory side or the or the the misinformation side of the arguments it's it's quite often very simplistic um arguments and if you if you listen to um and i don't necessarily know why anyone would do this to their ears and, and their brain but if you listen to a conspiracy theorist they will often have very quick very uh straightforward answers to pretty much any question you throw at them like they they will have very definitive answers um and you know when when you speak to to an academic or or an expert quite often there there isn't that definitive answer and and i I kind of wonder if it's that kind of, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect of when you don't know what you don't know. So when you know very little about a subject, you feel very certain that that's all there is to know because you just have no idea about how, how big the subject actually is. Whereas if you're an expert or an academic, you know how much you don't know. So you often feel like, well, there's a lot of uncertainties and there's a lot of things that you know, need to be accounted for. So it, you know, which is which is important because it shows that kind of rigor to to the scientific process. Um, but at the same time, I wonder if the, uh, you know, the scientific profession is kind of a, a victim of its own, um, what's the word, a victim of its own uh, transparency in a way, because when you have a scientist and a, and a you know, conspiracy theorist debating or having those same discussions, someone that has no idea and is very impressionable will see the scientist as someone that is, you know, that there's a bit of doubt in, in some of the stuff they say, or there's a bit of an uncertainty, even though minuscule, whereas the um the the person that's spreading the disinformation will be very poignant very very direct and and very clear as to what what they're saying um and I just want to I mean do, do you do you feel like that's that's the case where sometimes there is that that kind of you know expertise being victim of their own kind of their own honesty in a way yeah there definitely is an element of the fact that as scientists there are some things we can't give a definite answer to so I mm -hmm. think how much sea level rise are we going to experience over the next century is a good example of that because our predictions have quite a big range on them but and and, and a conspiracy theorist will use that or or, or this yeah. information person will use that and be like ah see you don't know therefore how can i trust that you know anything and then just go on off, off this like crazy tirade about 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 lack of knowledge when in reality actually it's the, the amount it kind of is going up is 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 kind of almost not irrelevant but it's less important for the general public the fact that it's going to rise is 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 more the point yeah and that that bit is not up for debate and we can say with a very high mm. level of certainty we can expect a certain amount of sea level rise but we also know that there might be a bit more because there are some things we don't understand but then that does become very dangerous saying there are things we don't understand people aren't necessarily going to say well great carry on and keep trying to understand it they're going to say well if you don't understand it can we trust your kind of the initial statement you made when actually there's kind of so much research and evidence behind the initial statement but i guess that kind of leads you to the point that as scientists often we're just trying to discover the truth we don't have some kind of agenda that we're trying to discover the best number to convince people to act on climate change we just want to know what might happen in the future and how likely all the different scenarios are. Whereas someone who's deliberately out there trying to persuade people with misinformation does have that goal specifically, whereas it's, it's not our job to necessarily convince people that something isn't happening. We're just going to be, you know, someone will be the world expert on a certain part of Antarctica and working out how that's going to change and builds into the bigger picture. Mm. So it's, yeah, because scientists are just going to be honest with what they know and 
that's not a bad thing, it's just how that information then gets communicated beyond us. We spoke a lot about the who, what and why of climate denial. But we can thank our lucky stars that the average person does believe in climate change, even if the increasing smog and pollutants make those stars progressively harder to see. So how do we actually go about solving this problem? And obviously, I mean, these are all um, great examples of things that we're seeing in our in, in, in kind of these, these times unfold. Um, but of course, like with everything positive, you've got these, as you said, these narratives, these narratives pushed by um, climate change delayers or, or potentially climate change deniers, um, businesses, private interest or whatever that, you know, you can see, you know, the way, say, Greta Thunberg's, um, you know, persona or her image is trying to be attacked, you know, around, you know, I'm not going to go into a list of list of examples, but there are there are plenty. Um, in the same way that Fridays for Future was was being attacked, and certain schools, for example, banned their kids from from attending those protests because of those because of those changes. And a lot of this is just, frankly, disinformation purely to to try and disrupt this this movement. Um, how can audiences or average people, ordinary people, young people, um, you know, uh, adults, etc., um, combat this kind of mis this and, and malinformation that we're kind of at the moment facing not from a necessarily climate change denier perspective because you said the conversation's kind of moved on but it's kind of delay tactic that um or, or changing of the narrative um from say again using the example of 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 extinction rebellion of well we're talking about the climate to oh these people are a nuisance like you can see that kind of you can see the way that um certain outlets or or, or um, you know, posts on social media trying to change that narrative, and you're seeing it with Fridays for Future sometimes. Um, although it's been a little bit more, uh, they, they managed to preserve their image a, a lot, a lot better. Um, but what can the average person do in terms of, of combating this kind of narratives and make sure to actually stay on message or stay on stay on the conversation? Mm. Well, I think there's there's a few different things. I mean, the first of all is I think people need to get into the um, the mindset that anything that you read or hear is only as believable you know, as the evidence source that it's come from, because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of stuff, um, it works to muddy the waters and, and to uh, and to lower the, um, you know, the credibility of a movement or, or a person um, by just getting it out there and getting it out there in a way that gets conversation going about it and that people will share, uh, even if the reason people are sharing it is because they're expressing that they don't believe it or, or that they disagree with it. And, and that's actually, you know, where... It's quite dangerous. That's where it's um, it, it's kind of, as I say, insidious because you just you take a step back and you just see a, a blurry picture. You see, you know, well, there just seem to be different sides to this, um, and that makes it very easy for people who are not one hundred percent invested in it, or, or you know, have other things to think about, to just go, well, it's not a cut and dry issue, so I don't, I'm not going to take a stance on this. And so that's it. There's this that sense that you you can have a very clear right and wrong. Um, but that clear right and wrong needs to be visibly clear. Um, otherwise, you're going to have the vast, uh, you know, majority of the population that might be sort of apathetic or, or at least not um, directly uh, engaged. Um, and they're not going to get behind one way or the other, which obviously serves the interest of the status quo. So I just say the other way I would say is, is you know, I think people need to, to exercise some self-control, which we're, we're kind of all losing a little bit with social media. It's just too easy to, to react. And, and a little to, bit. Have you seen Twitter exactly. lately? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just say, don't contribute. Um, like, choose your. Um, it's better for mental health as well. So this, this all ties up with with the, the fact that this 
you know, eco-anxiety is, is um, as much a, a sort of online and, and social issue as it is actually just a response to the, the threats that we face. Um, because you just have this kind of like uh, tiring and, um, you know, demoralizing um, battle with truth <laughs> or, you know, uh, the, the fight against truth is happening. Um, and of course, you can use up all your energy um, just trying to, uh, you know, state the obvious to people who are just telling you that the obvious isn't true. And they, the people who are doing that, um, or certainly the sources that they are drawing on, um, you know, probably really know that it's, you know, what the truth is. Um, and it's it's somewhere along the line there's a vested interest in getting the alternative view out there. And so it, it sucks the energy out of, uh, you know, a lot of people who could be doing really positive, um, you know, positive things to, to bring change. And so staying out of debates and forums that are amplifying misinformation is really important because, um, you know, it does end up um, amplifying and validating them. It's better to stay completely separate and to just to do something that is right, you know, like the you know, the school strikes, just, you know, just plugging on with those Friday strikes and the and the general strikes that are called. Um, it continues to just be a heartbeat that young people can connect with and join and a movement that continues to build and that is already has had impact and is already having impact. Um, and I think just generally when you're posting yourself, it's really important to to model good practice, if you like. So don't um, write a post or write an article or, or, or enter into a conversation with a perspective that you yourself um, don't know, you know, where the evidence source might be for that. Because mm -hmm. uh, even if you are right, even if you just feel and you know, I'm pretty certain about this, this is that, you know, this is what all my friends are saying. You're, you're falling into the same trap. You're doing the same thing as all the people that are sharing the misinformation or the disinformation. Um, even if you are on the right, if you haven't actually got your, um, if you're not doing it in the right way and you're not actually coming at it um, as, a, as a sort of credible, um, believable and, and, and convincing argument, you're just entering the blur. You're just entering the, that, that muddied water and, and just stirring it up. Um, so I think don't mix don't mix your own opinion, your own conjecture, your own judgment of other people in with facts um, when facts are actually what you just want to cut through with. Mm -hmm. How do we embed these these skills? Um, considering that the time we live in, where I'd argue probably I mean conspiracy theories and, and misinformation is probably at some of the, the highest points at the moment, um, just yeah. in general, not just because of the pandemic, but just in general. Absolutely. And, and I think you can probably guess where I'm going to go with this. It would be most likely uh, you know, <laughs> I believe that education really is the key here, uh, because these are, um, you know, these are soft skills. These are skills that you just need to sort of be familiar with and practice until they become second nature. Um, and critical thinking is, is of course, uh, you know, is, is one thing. It's, it's just being able to, to look at all sides and, and be able to, you know, to, to not just jump on what seems like the most obvious or likely solution but to make sure that you've got it kind of backed up and so on um what we try and do with with our work around uh, climate biodiversity uh, and sustainability in schools um is put everything into a systems thinking context and this is even with the younger age groups although we don't necessarily tell them that's what we're doing um but we just make sure that uh, you don't come in um and and just learn sort of an isolated bubble um of of facts um, or just um, have things portrayed in a linear uh, connections fashion. So linear thinking um, is actually a major problem. It actually tends to be what most conspiracy theories are, are actually spun around. Um, so you have, you know, a linear connection. You have, um, we take the plastics crisis. It's not a big focus uh, for us uh, compared to climate change and habitat loss at the moment. But I think it's the one 
which really uh, resonates with a lot of people because they can see uh, a, a something that happens in their own lives. So they, there's plastic around them. They're using plastic. They're given mm -hmm. a plastic bag at the supermarket, or they or they they have um, they have to buy food in plastic packaging because they can't get it otherwise in their supermarket. And then they hear about you know the plastic crisis in the oceans. They see you know a turtle eating a a white plastic bag because it thinks it's a, a jellyfish or a seahorse floating along with a with a straw, not realizing that it's um, that it's just a piece of rubbish. Um, and people make a linear connection there, and they go, okay, well, um, plastic is is bad. I use plastic; it ends up in the ocean. Um, and so that's you know that's in a sense those two things are true. <laughs> they are true. Um, but that that's a linear connection, and it can lead to people making the you know the wrong decision about what needs to be done about it, um, and and basically just uh, ending up doing something which um, which doesn't bring change. As soon as you take a step back and look at um, something in a systems um, thinking perspective. So you're trying to look at all of the different uh, connected issues and all the different parts of that system. Um, and suddenly you just go, well, hang on a minute. Um, I'm, I'm one point in a chain. The ocean is another point in the chain. And it's not just the chain, it's the, it's the web. There's loads of things at play here. Um, and you've got, you know, before I can be buying that plastic bag or being given that plastic bag, um, there needs to have been the materials for it, uh, produced and sold to a manufacturer, and there needs to be a way of making profit with that, that the policy, government policy allows. The manufacturer needs to be able to market uh, and sell and make a profit from selling the, the thing that they've made and not be under any um, you know, rules or, or tax um, incentives to, to, uh, to, you know, to, to deal with any environmental impact. You have to have uh, the shops where you picked it up have to be stocking them. You have to have enough demand for the, the shops to carry on. Um, and then you have the other side of the chain. You have to go waste disposal. Well, um, you know, it has to uh, to end up not being recycled. It has to be um, like not just not recycled, but it has to be malhandled to the point when it ends up in the ocean. Then it has to be, you know, not stopped at that point and cleaned up from the ocean. And so there's all of these different things uh, at, at play. Um, and of course, suddenly you go, well, oh, hang on a minute. This shouldn't be my responsibility. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a big system here, and me changing is not going to change the system. It's just going to make me feel like I'm not contributing. Um, mm. But actually, something more, something more urgent than that. And so <laughs> suddenly, you go well. Let's look at where we can actually have the change there. And, and as an aside on that, um, where as soon as we break the plastics crisis down into systems thinking for people, um, there, then there's a bit of a kind of unexpected connection that people end up making because, of course, the manufacturer. Uh, the, the the source of the um, of, of the PET and and the and the sort of plastics resins is the fossil fuel industry, and so they are um, you know they're the villains again because they're pushing uh, plastics into the marketplace against um, you know public uh, um, wishes and, and against common sense and against scientific evidence um, because uh, fossil fuels themselves are becoming less and less profitable. Um, because obviously now there are more alternatives and people are, uh, are obviously seeing the impact of those. Um, and so they go, well, well, we can still use our product um, as long as we can keep the demand for plastics high. Um, and, and, you know, people's focus is shifting slightly away from that. So maybe we can just, you know, plug uh, plastics back in and suddenly, you know, it becomes a lot cheaper to, to go down the plastic route than to, to take the, the right choice into environmentally uh, friendly materials. So you suddenly go, well, okay, we should be focusing on government, we should be focusing on local authority, we should be focusing on the fossil fuel industry. Whoever it is that's going to be able to make the big difference, it's not me. 
Um, but I can be the one that puts the pressure on to get the change that's needed. It's not about my behavior, it's about changing the system. Mm-hmm. And, and just to go back to that, that, that point I made about these kind of linear connections can lead to conspiracy theories, um, you could have, this is where malinformation can come in, because you can have something that's true, and then something else that's true, and you can just draw a line between them and say, so we need to do this or stop doing this. And it can be, you know, genuinely um, just completely a false connection. Um, and you're leaving all the other elements out of the system. And so uh, it just seems to make sense to people who don't see that system. Um, and and then, of course, when something comes in to, um, to undermine that connection, uh, you can just, you know, add a little bit of false information or you can kind of um, work or work around it, and that's how you start to build up, you know, a, a web of of, uh, of disinformation or, or, or malinformation um, that can kind of support what was never founded in the first place. So, I mean, the flatter uh, is the is the very obvious point. You know that there's, you know, it it doesn't make sense to anyone that isn't a flat earther to, to think that the Earth is flat. We've seen pictures of Earth from space. It makes more sense physically. It fits with our understanding of the natural universe. For globe um but just the fact that you might stand um and, and look at the horizon and think mm, it looks quite flat to me um and therefore um end up believing a whole load of very tenuous lies over um the physical evidence of, of a bit from space or, or, or all of the other evidence um that's kind of where we can head if, if we don't start people off um from an early age um just being able to 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 put things in a systems perspective mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, and, and and it's and it's it's so true that when you when you oversimplify something or when you just have you know connection A to point B and then you're like well that's 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 it that's that's the problem um, you you can end up going down an incredibly wrong um, wrong route. Would you suggest someone should do if they come across a I'm gonna make them sound uh, like they're kind of boogeyman or whatever, but <laughs> someone came across a climate change denier or a climate change delay or someone that. Um, I didn't believe it, believed in the conspiracy or, or just said, nah, it's not an issue. I mean, is there any advice you can give to someone? Yeah, well, I mean, I think first of Apart all... Apart from um, run, obviously. <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense, that's that's not a bad uh, position <laughs> to take. But I, I think that the worst thing you can do is, is engage in a public forum mm. with people like that because um, for all the reasons outlined, I mean, it just ends up, it's, particularly if you're following the second rule that I would say, which would be to keep it civil, because it can be very difficult to keep it civil when someone is being, you know, incredibly intransigent. But of course, if you are being civil and you're responding and saying, oh, I don't think you've seen it this way, or um, have you read this because this actually, you know, undermines what you're saying, um, all of that stuff, uh, and they come back with something which, you know, is, is non-evidence, but on, if you just read the conversation on Twitter or on, on Facebook or wherever it might be, um, it feels, you know, just as valid as, as what you're saying. You've just got this thing out in the public domain, which is adding to that sense of, of um, there being two sides to it. So I think keep it civil. But when you are responding, whether it's um, outside of that public forum um, or, or you're just you know doing a one-off, here's my input uh, just to make sure that it doesn't go unanswered, but I'm not going to engage in the dialogue. Keep it evidence-based um, and non-personal. So it's you know what I was saying before, just make sure that, that you're posting something that isn't just a you know, no, you idiot, it's this way. Um, you're actually saying, actually, um, here's, the, here's the data or here's, here's the, the scientific evidence that this is the case and not the other case. And don't be tempted to mix your opinions or your personal conclusions from that data with the data itself. Just keep the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think also with all of these people, 
they need uh, reflection time to actually change. They're not going to change in the middle of an argument, whether it's on uh, social media or uh, you know in person or at an event or um, uh, through private communication. Um, in that exchange, they're going to be trying to win. They're going to be trying to get their point across. And so if anything, you'll just lead them to entrench their views. So it's counterproductive, not just because of how it's perceived from the outside, but actually to be changing that person. Whereas if you can just point them to the place where they can see the other side um, and show some empathy for where they might have got their views uh, or why they might have certain views um, uh, without being judgmental about it, um, and then just leave them to be able to reflect themselves, then you create the opportunity for them to, uh, to, to have that thought process to come round and then to come back in on their own terms uh, with the right uh, perspective. And it won't always happen, of course, but, but you will have given that opportunity. Otherwise, you're, you're really kind of almost making it less likely mm -hmm. that someone's going to change their views and you're obviously um, adding to the, to the um, distracting buzz um, that's out there in the world. It's entirely possible that many will see the title of this podcast episode and dismiss it outright due to reasons our guests have already outlined. But for those of you who have chosen to join us, keen to understand the story of climate change and climate denial from its humble beginnings to its much grander, grimmer stature today, we can only offer you a glimpse of what's to come for our planet straight from a climate scientist herself. Unfortunately, anything but the best case scenario looks pretty uninviting. What climate scientists will often try and do is give people the range of possibilities, which, mm -hmm. like you said, that's not appealing to everyone because we like certainty. But actually, the way a lot of future predictions are made is because we don't know how humans are going to behave in the future. We don't know if everyone is going to cut their emissions now or 10 years in the future or not at all or maybe we'll even increase emissions so when climate scientists kind of run their big simulations and work out sort of future temperatures and future conditions they'll run it under all those different scenarios so the ones where we cut emissions now the ones where we have lots of emissions in the future and then show what all those different future worlds could look like so it's offering people a choice like which one mm. of these places do you want to end up in and um, so it, it's not there isn't certainty we know that bad things are going to happen like we are locked into some bad changes and that that's important to remember but also we have a lot of choice over how bad those changes are going to be and how soon we are going to experience those things as well yeah i mean I, i'm gonna have to ask uh how how bad would it get if we did nothing oh i, I don't even want to think about it <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, if we kind of carried on as we are and in the trajectory of increasing emissions, like there are so many crazy things that can happen. I was actually teaching my students today about something called tipping points, which is basically where an irreversible thing happens to our climate system. So an example would be kind of the complete loss of the Greenland ice sheet. So once it starts on this kind of runaway trajectory that it disappears, you get these feedback systems where you're getting more sea level rise and um, because the ice is disappearing the planet isn't cooling as fast so things get warmer that lots more ice and so on and all these things kind of pile up together that yeah i think i scared my final year um environmental geography class a bit by talking about these tipping points but oh god <laughs> yeah it's yeah that's kind of 
worst case scenario, but also something that we could well experience if we're not really, really careful and don't take action really soon. So there you have it. I want to say a massive thank you to Sammy for teaching us about climate change and putting contemporary discussions about the topic in perspective. And to Matt for providing some expert advice on how to tackle online spaces and conspiracy theories. In spite of what some may say online, we couldn't have done it without experts like you. I know this episode ended with a bit of a doom and gloom, but so does Don't Look Up, former Vice President Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, that one episode of Newsroom where a climate scientist says there's no turning back, all among several other fiction and non-fiction contributions to the widening climate change canon. Whilst the degree to which each of them stick to the facts varies, each of them plots the same concerning future for the place we call home. But it's worth noting the most important word in this sentence, plots. The most dire outcomes are not set in stone yet. There's still time to take action, campaign, march, speak out and educate others about the importance of acting against climate denial and delay for the future of our planet. We cannot let keyboard warriors in comment threads or keynote speakers at political party conventions kick this problem down the road any longer. Because before long, there won't be any road left. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.